Okay, guys, welcome to the first uh, monthly review for Revenant Labs. So uh, I'm Chad Lee and I'm hosting. Uh, and I've got here today with me uh, Zam and Entropy. Uh, and we're going to be having a chat in these conversations, particularly about the things that have been accomplished over the previous month for Revenant Labs. Uh, but also it's an opportunity for us to go into more detail about what's been happening at the protocol generally, uh, as well as to discuss specifically different pieces of the products themselves uh, and the design thesis behind them, uh, as well as how things actually work, the more complicated elements of what's been going on. So, um, Zam, do you want to say a few words? Yeah, so I'll just introduce myself for the podcast here. Um, so I've been, I guess I'm the founder of originally Stake Stake and now Revenant. Um, I've been around since May working on projects with specifically dealing with FUSD, but now have transitioned on to uh, different more more uh, products like CUSD and Creditum and Revenant Labs. And going forward, we're working on Singularity as well. So uh, that's kind of a little bit about my background. And now on to Entropy. Yeah, so I'm, I was brought on by Zam into Revenant with the launch of Creditum. And after Creditum, I began working on Singularity and in general, I'm just working on, I'm like the lead Solidity developer and just creating out cool projects for Revenant Labs to build down. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. So the very first thing we'll do, and this will be the plan moving forward as well for subsequent episodes, is we're just going to have a talk uh, in the macro view, just kind of zooming out a little bit and looking at the protocol as a whole and seeing what we've been up to over the past month. So the very first thing I want to talk about is the FBeats Wars. Uh, and how how Revenant Labs particularly has taken part in that. So uh, do either of you want to jump in there? Yeah, so the FBs Wars is something that we had Sheehan really uh, spearhead over here. So it's a, to, to, to explain a little bit about what it is, it's basically a uh, voting system or bribe system where uh, protocols can offer rewards to users um, in return for their their FBeats, uh, for, for, for FBeats to vote on a specific pool that they want to incentivize. So in our case, we wanted to incentivize the, the credit CUSD FTM pool, which will offer That's the, uh, more- the stable credit, the stable credit Sonata, right? Yeah, the stable credit Sonata. So that this will allow for a lot more um, farming opportunities with credit and CUSD that are not offered on our website. So we're just, this is just kind of a way for us to reach out and uh, have more uh, use cases for our tokens. Mm -hmm. And it's worth just noting for those who are, are not so certain about um, beats and how the bribes always work. There was the article that we put together and put out not that long ago, um, which we could potentially link uh, with the podcast as well. Um, but there's also just just as a quick snapshot. Essentially, FBeats is the governance token, um, the token with governance rights uh, for Beethoven X. Beethoven X is a balance of V2 fork, uh, friendly fork, um, and uh, they are a DEX, um, an AMM. And fundamentally, what they do um, is is they they are where you might go to stake liquidity. Uh, in this case, we're talking specifically about CUSD, for example, or Creditum. Um, and or credits, sorry. And the uh, idea here uh, is to give more opportunities for yield farming. 
Um, and if you have F beats, you can vote for more of the beats emissions, which is the other token we're talking about here, um, to different pools. In this case, Revenant's been looking, Revenant Labs have been looking to incentivize their pool, the Stable Credit Sonata, so that there are more beats emissions going to that pool. So if you go there and you stake any of those elements, what is it in the pool, Zam? It's CUSD, Credit, uh, and is it Phantom? Yeah. So uh, in this case, Phantom or Raft Phantom works. It's like, uh, let me get the numbers here. So it's about 75% credit, I think 15% uh, CUSD and 10, 10% Phantom. Let me, let, me, let me verify that real quick. Great. So this is one of Beethoven's weighted pools. This is one of the reasons they're different to other uh, DEXs is this ability to have, um, it's not just a 50-50 split. You could have 30-30-30 or there are some wild pools that have eight different tokens in them. But in this case, we're just talking about credit, CUSD and Phantom. Uh, yeah. So for, yeah, for the specific pool that we're trying to incentivize, it's just credit, CSD and Phantom. Perfect. And so at the moment you can see the pool value there is about $1.5 million. Um, and it currently has an APR, um, of about 27%, about 4.43% of that being swap fees and 22.5% being beats rewards. But the whole point of bribing a pool, which is what we're discussing here, the whole point of bribing FBeats holders to vote for your pool to get more beats emissions is to increase that potential APR to be substantially higher. And generally, those pools that have done well out of that voting process have ended up with really decent APRs. Yeah. So, okay. yeah, I was just going to say, like, this is something that, uh, like, the Beethoven team is a great team. Uh, Jeffrey has really helped us with um, getting this entire thing like started and getting this going. Um, we continue. We're we're planning on continuing to incentivize this pool, just to be more involved with uh, the community and also to get uh, extra rewards for our credit users. Perfect. And at the moment. Um, you've had around how many bribes have been paid out now? Uh, just over uh, about twenty and a half thousand quid, correct? Yeah, yeah. So so far so in bribes. So I think our first week we were offering three k percent or three k USD dollar in credit for every one percent up to one to to up to ten percent, and then after that we were offering three k for every percent of votes afterwards um mm -hmm. and then we did that same thing for the last last week so well i want to say last week so these these votes actually happen bi-weekly um these bribe votes so each week they that's the the missions for fbeats completely changes and so we so all the projects have to try to get users to vote for uh their product uh in order to get a, a percentage here and the more percentage you get, yeah. so there's, there's one. I was going to say there's one amendment there, which was that it's bi-weekly for beats, yeah. So uh, it's every two weeks. So the next vote will be in. We're on Monday now. Um, the vote ended on Wednesday earlier this week, and then the next one won't be until um, not this week, but the week after. Um, so on a bi-weekly basis, you have the gauge votes, if I remember correctly. Yeah, exactly, and typically how these bribes work is they vote or they, they pay out based on 
a how many percentage of the votes that you get. So for example, I was trying to explain a little bit earlier, but I don't think I did a great job. So I'm going to try to reiterate, reiterate here. So when um, let's say we, we offered this incentive, like, okay, we're giving out 3K credit for our pool for every percent, right? So the first week we got 5.47%. So that means we're paying out 5.47% or times 5.47 times 3K in USD value, because that's that's the amount mm-hmm. that we got uh, of votes we so, got. So about 15,000, slightly more, 16,000-ish. Uh, 16, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. around the area. But let's, so the second week, we only ended up getting 2.82%, right? So that means that we are getting um, two, 2.82 times 3K USD value in credit. So the second week, we actually ended up paying out a little less, but the whole reason behind this structure is we're trying to incentivize more people to vote and we're only paying out the amount based on how uh, we, we, based on how much people vote and we don't want to cap uh, the amount of votes that we can get. So yeah, as, as we get so the, more the, votes... The, the more people that vote, the more people that vote, the more you're going to pay out, but there's no limit to the amount that you could pay out depending on how many people vote for you, right? Yep, exactly. Perfect. And then uh, it's also worth noting that for anybody listening, you may have heard there that it almost sounds like there's a descending percentage, right? So you've got 5.47, then you've got 2.82, and then you've got 1.54 in each of these rounds. It is worth that the competition now inside of those bribes rounds is pretty fierce. Yeah, it's pretty fierce. Um, so we're really trying to up our uh, the amount of rewards we're trying to get, try to compete a little bit more in these pools. So for example, this week, we're instead of just offering 3k USD value per credit, we were offering 3k US uh, 3k credit and 3k USDC. And moving forward, is this something you see uh, the labs continuing to compete for? Uh, yeah, as for for now, we are definitely uh, competing for um, these pools. Um, I think it's a great way to get the community involved and really kind of show. Uh, ourselves and or show how we want to compete and that we want to be like on in the top tier level of protocols along with other protocols such as spooky and liquid driver and such i also think you know there's there's two other things to sort of mention now which is it does show some sense of solidarity with other really sort of top quality uh, protocols and experiences on Phantom like Beethoven, right? So it, it's it's nice to see the interoperability, the composability between the two protocols, um, between Revenant Labs and uh, Beethoven X. But also as well, on top of that, it does bring quite a lot of eyeballs to any project that takes part in it. The bribing round is, is a great way um, to bring attention to you and your your platform. Yeah, exactly, exactly. People get to see... Maybe maybe let's say you're, you're, you're looking at these pools because of uh, another protocol is bribing, but you also get the opportunity to see protocols like credit that are also bribing. So, you know, we kind of, you know, yeah. So maybe you enter and in, get interested in the FB stores because of one protocol, but you end up seeing and getting exposure to all these other pro- protocols. So it's a great way to kind of market and get ourselves out there more. Absolutely. Um, let's, let's switch up gears. Um, and let's talk a little bit about VE token and its integration. So in this case, VE credit. 
Um, and hopefully we can we can bring entropy a bit in more now into this discussion. So if I could ask first, before we get into actually the integration and how it's gone and the, the fees that have already been paid out to VE credit holders, um, first of all, could we just discuss um, uh, the, the, the rationale behind moving to the VE credit model? So I know this has been discussed before, but it's a really good starting point for anyone listening. So previously, it was an X credit model, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And the X credit model um, is uh, the X sushi design uh, and also what you've got with X boo as well. So for those that aren't sure about that, those are good examples of this. Um, VE uh, tokens, on the other hand, are a different model. Uh, originally, or most famously anyway, pioneered by um, Curve, VE Curve tokens. Um, so can we expand a little bit upon um, why exactly this is the model that's been switched to from an X credit model? Right. So uh, when we first launched, uh, we still needed to keep most of like the governance of, of like running the uh, protocol parameters like run by the dev team, right? Because there's a lot of things to bootstrap. And we just needed to incentivize people to get to know about the token. And if they want to buy the token, they can stake it and earn yield. So we didn't really want to force users to lock up their tokens initially, right? So that's why we launched um, the X Sushi model token, uh, the X token. And just let people, you know, if they want to stake their token, they can earn yield and they can unstake at any time. But as the protocol evolves, you know, we make fees and we want to distribute the fees to long-term believers of the protocol, not just swing traders who want a quick, um, who want to like exploit the, the fee distribution. So this way by locking, we're only, we're basically rewarding the people who believe in the long-term and essentially allow us to focus on this group of people who will also in the future running the governance decisions of the protocol as well so basically we okay. just want to filter out the the, the non-supports i guess and just focus on the people who want to be here for the long term okay so originally the x the x credit model was in place because um you didn't necessarily want to put people in a position where they had to lock straight away um and then that switch now to a model which is based really around incentivizing commitment, right? So you're incentivizing a commitment right. to the protocol and interest over long term uh, with the protocol. And in return for that interest um, at the moment, and we can expand a little bit upon what this might look over time, perhaps. But at the moment, uh, that agreement is essentially uh, you are incentivized into that longer term commitment with this protocol. Um, and that means uh, uh, you're going to... Uh, by incentivize, uh, you are incentivized into the long-term commitment with this protocol um, to lock your tokens. That's part of the deal. You lock your tokens, your credit, and you get VE credit in return. And then as a result of that, you also get access to the fees, correct? Correct, yeah. Okay. And at the moment, um, I've got down here that uh, 113000 just over $113,000 worth of fees have now been sent to VE credit holders already. Yeah, so yeah. let me let me explain a little bit more about the fees. We talked a little bit about the Discord. So before we moved to the V token model, um, for the first two months we were generating fees, and we wanted to we we weren't using those to really buy back uh, credit yet. We wanted to wait until we had the V token model in place. So now that we've had it in place, we had about. So, so we had about one hundred ninety thousand before we had the one hundred ninety thousand uh, dollars accumulated in fees beforehand, and now that we have the V token model, we want to slowly distribute that those 
those fees that we have accumulated. So retro retroactively distribute those fees. So um, a lot of these numbers are not from each week's fees. So uh, we're we're distributing we're instead in distributing them across the next eight weeks along with uh, the fees generated each week as well. Okay. And just again, for those people who are listening, uh, who may not have done this yet, and, and suddenly there is a perk and they go, I didn't realize you could lock credit in exchange for fees over time. Um, what are the locking periods for VE credit? So how long would you have to commit to? And uh, what percentage of the fees are going to credit holders at the moment, VE credit holders? Um, so I'll say that 25% of the fees is given to the protocol and then the rest of the 75% is given to uh, the credit holders. And Entropy, do you want to talk a little bit more about how uh, the locking works and what percentage of the fees you get based on how yeah. much time you lock? So to answer your earlier question, uh, users can lock between one week and four years. So four years would be the max, one week would be the least. Um, and if you lock for four years, let's say you lock 10 credit for four years, you would get 10 V credit, right? And it linearly depreciates over those four years. But if you if someone else locked 10 credit for only one year, then they would get one fourth of that. So they get 2.5 V credit. So basically, the longer you lock, the more V credit balance you get. But everyone depreciates at the same linear rate. And so that's why we incentivize people to keep locking their credit if, um, once their lock expires, basically, so you can keep earning those fees. Okay. So if you want the maximum return on your lock, very similar to other protocols, you need to lock for the maximum period of time, in which case here that's four years. Correct. Yeah. Okay, great. And then at the moment, um, you know, one of the benefits we've, we've spoken about is we've spoken about a benefit of this being fees being distributed to VE credit holders. Are there any other incentives you want to talk about now that will also be coming the way of people who are locking their credit? Um, yeah, so uh, basically, we want to make sure our governance is mainly controlled by the people who are in it for the long term. So we're thinking about use for, for our on-chain governance specifically, um, we're going to be using v, uh, people who hold V credit are able to vote on the which, 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 uh, which one of our collaterals are changing interest rates. So in the future, we're going to make sure that, um, well, okay. As a protocol, our main goal is to make sure that our token is on peg, right? So the way that we do this is by lowering or increasing interest rates based on whether or not that pool is balanced. So for example, if the pool is overbalanced in CUSD, we want to encourage uh, people to repay back their loans more. So we're going to be increasing interest rates on CUSD. So that part isn't going to be governed by credit or uh, V-credit holders. Instead, it's which assets actually get the increase in interest rates. Or uh, uh, in the other case, let's say uh, USDC is overly balanced in the curve pool. So there's more USDC than CUSD. We want to make sure there's more CUSD in the pool. We know we need to uh, actually lower interest rates. Then the V credit holders are able to 
vote on which asset they want to actually be lowering interest rates for. Right. Okay. So, so the general idea of the like the governance is to basically let the V the V lockers become the Fed, right? They can control interest rates. They can control collaterals being added and which ones uh, might might need to be removed, and basically just absorb responsibility for the protocol. So this way, it's not just the dev team making these uh, unilateral decisions. It's all the token holders get to participate. Presumably, there will be some degree of um, of a safety valve, though, in the sense that if there are, that there are going to be some decisions, I would imagine, that still ultimately rest with the developers. Correct, yeah. But our, our long-term goal is to eventually decentralize sufficiently where all decisions are made by the token holders. It's just right now, since we are relatively young, uh, we, some, some controls need to be still held by the dev team. Okay. So to summarize with VE credit, because uh, you know I know we need to whiz through a few other things as well, but uh, VE credit, the new model that's been introduced over X credit, fundamentally, this is about shifting to a long-term vision and wanting to get on board those people who are with you for the long haul. And so if you want to take part in governance, for example, and an expanding amount of governance, it sounds like, over time with credit, the protocol, uh, and to behave, as you said, like the Fed for the protocol, then what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to lock your credit. So you get VE credit in return. And if you want to get the maximum uh, return in terms of fees, uh, you'll go, and also in terms of governance, because you're going to have more uh, VE credit, you need to lock for the maximum amount of time, which is four years. Yeah. Happy with that? Yeah, Perfect. sounds good. Okay. Okay. So um, to move on, we now need to talk a little bit about the new user interface. Uh, so for those people who have been visiting the site, they would have noticed uh, there's been quite a nice graphical overhaul. Um, let's talk about that. So any initial thoughts about the redesign? Yeah. So I'd like to uh, give a little shout out to Young CB for designing the uh, Revenant Labs new UI. Um, for those who don't know who he is, he's been around the Phantom community for a while and he's been helping out with a whole bunch of different projects like Scream. Um, uh, there's the, the the Frogs NFT that he was working on and uh, he also helped out a little bit on RoboVault. Um, he's uh, kind of specifically working on Revenant Labs with us as well. Uh, he's, he's designed past UIs for us back on stake as well. So. Um, great person to have on the team, a uh, good friend of mine as well. Um, but yeah, we kind of designed this uh, website uh, before when we launched. We kind of had a little, um, there was there was kind of buggy and some of the flows we didn't really like. Um, we've definitely tried to take a more professional feel on our UI design, whereas we kind of went more experimental at the beginning. Um, and so... So I think uh, the new UI currently looks pretty good. Um, there were some concerns of how the color, uh, the coloring is, uh, specifically that it's a little too dark. So we're definitely going back into the labs and trying to figure out a better way to reorganize the coloring and uh, redo some of the design just so that we make the experience as smooth as possible for our users. Um, also, right now we have, uh, during this time, we had a little weird transition period where we had um, our URL being revenant.finance. 
And then when we launched the new UI, we went to RevNet Labs.io. And I think that was a little bit confusing for our users. So and we're gonna well, how we're gonna deal with this is we're gonna be removing RevNet Finance as completely and then moving that old site for anyone who prefers the old site to uh, a subdomain of Revenant Labs. So we'll probably have the new URL, U, URL the legacy.revenantlabs.io or something along those lines. Okay. I have to say, I do think the new design looks really clean. Um, I think that there's always a toss up between whether or not people like a darker designer or a lighter design. For me personally, as I do quite a lot of work late at night, it's nice having a lot of the black. Um, but, uh, and, and obviously, uh, if you'd gone with too much white, for example, that would have been an issue too. Um, but yeah, finding that balance is interesting. Uh, and it's great that you're working towards, um, a happy medium, but as it stands right now, I think it looks really clean. Uh, and I think the redesign has actually been a really, um, a really nice shift from my perspective. Yeah. Thank you. That's all. That's all young CB right there. Credit to young CB. Um, okay. So let shift across to one of the broader pieces for discussion, which is there has been some talk and some rumblings about singularity. There hasn't been a great deal really said so far specifically. The, the specifics have uh, remained uh, close to the chest. I think that's fair to say. So can we talk firstly with singularity in mind about the development process? So at this point in time, singularity seems to have been in production for a while, what's going on there? Right. <clears throat> so when I first came up with Singularity, we had we were kind of like a um, curve competitor with stable offerings to stable swaps around an Oracle price. Um, but after talking with someone, uh, one of my friends, we decided to completely reshift the design of Singularity to be even more modular and allow for even more flexibility with swapping not just between assets that are similarly priced. But as any assets, like we can swap USDC to Bitcoin or ETH or whatever, and still have the same stable, um, stable curve algorithm, right? And the 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 cool thing about Singularity is is we don't use like generalized um, bonding curves like Uniswap with X times Y equals K or anything. Um, this is a completely redesigned protocol that has a new curve that hasn't really been tested yet. So we want to make sure that the release is very limited and we don't actually risk that much of users funds but the general idea is that it'll allow these very low probably the lowest uh, slippage swaps on phantom with very little liquidity requirements um as well so okay i, I don't i don't want to release too much right now but uh, we'll get into so it later for, on sure so for users though just to keep things as simple as possible the the benefit that, that users will experience from this new curve which still requires testing, okay. is you said very low slippage on trades with not very right. much liquidity. And if we were to sort of make that even simpler, why is that a big deal for most users? Right. So as a, as a just a normal user who wants to buy and sell assets, they don't really care like what, what is going on behind the scenes. As long as they get the, a better rate from somewhere else, you take it, right? It's, it's free money. So yeah. the whole point of this is to minimize the amount that users lose due to like slippage on other exchanges or other worse rates and offer users always the best rate they can get on on these chains 
Okay. So fundamentally for a user who wants to be using singularity, potentially using singularity, the big benefit for them in the simplest terms possible is if they want to trade between two assets, um, when they do that, they are more likely to get as close to as possible the perfect outcome for that trade without losing any value really in that trade. Correct. Okay. Um, and the other thing, the other reason it's taking a bit longer um, is not just sort of making absolutely sure the new curve is going to work properly uh, and not to do that. I, I'm wanting to do that without dabbling with users' funds, which I think is an amicable reason. And I think almost everybody would understand that, but also because you're working on audits as well, correct? Correct, yeah. We aim to get at least two audits um, done and uh, one internal audit by the Byte Masons people. So that way we can ensure that the code is solid, you know, before we launch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is yeah. there anything else? Sorry, go on, Sam. Yeah. So um, originally with our old model, we actually had everything like ready um, in terms of audit side. We had a pixel audit and we really thought we were going to launch a little earlier. Um, and, but yeah, as, as Entropy said, we were talking to one of our other friends and uh, we thought of a different model. So we actually thought it would be better to just completely overhaul the model um as a whole even though we already had this audit in place so we actually have to go back and re-get redo our audits so that we have our new code ready for launch yeah and one of the reasons for that as mentioned is because you felt like as a team you could offer a better product if you shifted gears at that point so you did yeah exactly yeah okay and i i don't think today uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't think the juice is going to be worth a squeeze. I don't think I'm going to get a great deal more out of you on singularity. Um, so let's 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 benchmark that one to come back to for sure uh, in another um, monthly review. Um, and for now, let's talk a little bit more about CUSD. So I think it's worth at this point just just expanding upon and thinking a little bit more about CUSD and why it exists. So. A reasonable question for people to ask, um, especially as we're in a situation where there are a range of stable coins available, is why does CUSD exist, to put it bluntly? So if we were to have that conversation, what would be the first thing that you would tell someone? Um, I think you're exactly right. That's, that's our uh, perspective on CUSD as well in that um, there are so many different protocols trying to create these stable coins, right? So, and at the end of the day, the actual stable coin, they all do pretty much the exact same thing. They're just a token that people want to use that they know will retain the same value as USD. So how do we exactly compete in this manner? Um, well, we actually don't compete in terms of getting uh, a lot of external use use cases from other protocols. Um, in the case of the FBeats war, we do still want to have some, but we're not really pushing for uh, an extreme amount of marketing and getting partnerships for COSD. We do want some critical ones like FBeats, but the real reason why we want to use COSD is to have it for our future protocols. Um, having control or 
or uh, yeah, having control of our own stablecoin is a very good utility for when we want to create something like singularity. So in the case of like our old model for singularity, or if you want to do a DEX where you have pair tokens, you could have CUS instead of you know having the routing token. So for example, on Spooky, they have FTM, everything's paired with FT, FTM, everything's routed through FTM. We would instead use COSD in this case. Um, obviously, that is the old model. We're not using COSD for that case. In the new model, we, it would be more of a line of credit for singularity. And uh, it'll be, uh, it will allow for adequate COSD liquidity. And hopefully, a lot of our routing will be able to go through COSD in that manner as well. Um, but these are only just a couple uh, examples of how we could be using COSD in our protocols. Again, so just to reiterate, our main goal for COSD is not to really push for um, integration with other, other protocols. For example, uh, another uh, protocol like my, a big part of their strategy is to really get onto as many chains as possible, get into as many protocols and as many farming opportunities as possible using their my token. Um, same thing with MIM, um, which, and uh, same thing for MIM. And for us, it's not really one of our main goals. It is still one of our goals to get some of our, let's get more use cases, but we're more focused on making sure that we're using COSD in our projects properly so that we can capture that value in that sense. Right. So that initial interest is internal as opposed to external. And CUSD is intended to be at the bare minimum, a bedrock for future project launches. Yep, exactly. Okay. Should we pause there so we can reconvene for part two? Yeah, so we can we can take a little quick break right here and then we can talk about part two for sure. Let's do that. Okay, so for this next section, we've got Sheehan joining us as well. Uh, Sheehan, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah. Uh, hey, I'm Sheehan. Uh, I'm the community manager for Revenant Labs. Okay, fantastic. And the reason Sheehan is joining us is because the next section is very pertinent to him and his skill set. Um, so... What we are going to talk about next is community in general, uh, why community matters specifically to Revenant Labs, and how we can do a better job uh, generally of, of communicating um, as a protocol to a community and vice versa, um, and what that looks like over the coming months. So I guess the first question that's worth asking, and I think, Shin, you could probably jump in here initially, is um, why does community matter at all to Revenant Labs, or really for any protocol broadly, if we're going to ask that question? Uh, yeah, um, in my opinion, and uh, this is something that I always uh, talk with Zam and the whole Revenant Labs team, uh, is that community matters the most. Uh, because in in comparison with TradeFi and we see companies, they, in crypto, we have a more of a community approach and we have like a huge connectivity with our day-to-day -day users. We see them and we know them. We talk them a lot easier. And we have designated people like myself that uh, try to see how the how the community is viewing the, the differences, the changes, the upgrades in the protocol. 
So community, in all honesty, makes all the difference. If you have a good community behind any project, you will you will evolve a lot faster than than projects that do not have a community because you don't you don't have those uh, Q and As or or people uh, pointing out different things that we could do or improve or something that they like. So um, the community makes the project, and they are the biggest uh, contributors. It's not. The teams need their, their communities to be active, to be supportive, to show what they want better in order for the product uh, a project to improve a lot faster. Uh, and in Revenant uh, Labs, this is something that I always talk to Zam and Entropy and everybody on the team is that we need to always focus on what the user wants or at least be as focused on uh, their opinions because if they like it, we improve and we get a lot better uh, uh, productivity. Um, and I think for any project, it's the same thing. Uh, you should always try to focus on your community because your community matters. I think there's there's quite a lot there that we could grab onto, but one of the pieces I want to to see if I can pick your brains on a little bit more then is you mentioned traditional finance or TradFi specifically, and you juxtaposed that, you compared that, you put it side by side with DeFi or decentralized finance. And you pointed out that one of the defining characteristics of decentralized finance compared directly to traditional finance is a sense of community. And I wonder, you know, a theory I would, I would lay out here would be, do you think that in part the reason that the community side of things matters so much in decentralized finance and DeFi is because the guardrails are off, so to speak. So in, in traditional finance, one of the arguments that gets made for its existence is these people are, are almost like uh, guardians of your funds because you're too stupid to manage them yourself, right? Which in itself is, is incredibly um, uh, pedantic. I, I think it does in itself engender a sense of kind of looking down the nose at people. But let, let's take that for what it is. And maybe sometimes it is required because maybe sometimes people aren't the best guardians of their own money. Anyone in this space would, would immediately contest that, I think, because they've come here specifically because decentralized finance defers at least to begin with that initial idea of custody to them, so self-custody. So do you think that the reason that community is so important in decentralized finance, and I agree with you, I think it is, is because there is kind of a, a need for there to be a mutual safety net provided by a community when the individual has been so empowered that there is no centralized force "Quote unquote," protecting them from mistakes. Um, yeah, I do think on on, the, on that same level. Like, if you are a user on TradeFi, you will always have a security net, and your bank or or the brokerage or anything that you use is going to help you if something happens. Yeah. The problem with decentralized finance is where if a problem appears or it happens, you can only have a safety net is if the actual developers that are doing the project actually go by their word and actually come back and do their job and try to repair everything they're done or they're just going to leave. And people need to be focused on if if I'm here, if I want to protect my money, then I also need to see if the community, the developers and et cetera are doing their best job. So that's why community is important because they actually make, uh, the more they, they are active, the more they do stuff, the more their money is a little bit safer. And I don't, I don't say 100% because nothing is 100% safe and not in trade fine or not in, in decentralized finance, nothing is safe, but it's it gets a little bit safer. If if we go to projects like, let's say, Uniswap, 
as an example, if Uniswap has a problem, you have a lot more safety uh, that it's going to be resolved than a project that came out a week ago, correct? So you're going to see that differentiation, that community. Why? Why why is that? Why is that though? So so I, I, I agree with you, but can you expand upon why you think that is? So you've said that Uniswap is an example you'd give as a protocol that has a better safety net. And I assume what you're doing is you're linking up to the idea of community. Can can you can you elaborate there? Uh, yeah, so Uniswap has such a name on, on the whole spectrum uh, of crypto and their community is so supportive of, of what they do that they evolved from, from Uniswap v1, v2. And it, you can see if, if, you, if you search a little bit, you can see the different, uh, how the community evolved and how Uniswap is now the, the project that it is. And I bet 100% and I would bet everything that if Uniswap didn't have that community behind to evolve, uh, and to create those those, those problems, uh, or if problems appear, they have people that go and check them. Um, Uniswap can be a big project, and the more people are active, the more they create that safety net, and the more the project gets legitimized uh, over new ones that you don't know the developers, you don't know what they're trying to do, and that's why most of the times new projects tend to rug and. Uh, projects that uh, stand the test of time actually go on to be super rigid and have a good structure. Okay. And, uh, and then, yes, yeah, sorry, go on. Uh, I want to just try to elaborate a little bit more and discuss like what exactly makes Uniswap so successful and why people trust Uniswap over other projects. So, okay, great, yeah. Yeah, so like one point I think is like, one, Uniswap kind of invented the idea of, or was one of the main, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I'm pretty sure Uniswap was the main creator of liquidity pools. So the people around Uniswap are, uh, or the community around Uniswap have a product that they believe in. Um, a lot of communities I see, like they, there's a lot of motivated people, but they don't really know what like they're the communalizing around, or like they'll have like a like a a a, um, a rather like um, fragile idea. Like it's kind of just like maybe maybe it's like a joke idea, like Dogecoin. I mean, the Dogecoin community was very successful, but like a lot of a lot of those those happen very rarely. A lot of times they don't last as long as Dogecoin. I know a lot of meme coins who have started and then died out within the next couple of weeks because they don't really have a real product. On the other hand, Uniswap mm-hmm. has this product that is an actual innovation um, and the community goes around it. Um, one question is then, I guess, for everyone also is, is does the product come first with innovation or does the community come first? Um, for me, my answer is the product comes first with an actual innovation and then the community comes around to to to, to surround it basically to support yeah. the, the the protocol and uh, uh, yeah that is true uh, but something that 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 we we often fail to see is that yeah protocols tend to evolve with the community they have but you need to also see that the people that go behind projects also tend to evolve the more projects evolve so uniswap v uh, when uniswap came out people were a lot uh, were not as effective or didn't know as much as they do now. And the more you are in your community and 
that's why community matters, in my opinion, is that you also, as a person and as a, a, an investor, a, a user, you evolve with also the protocol that sometimes you choose to support more. If people cho- choose to support Uniswap uh, from when it started, they, I, I bet you they are now a lot more experienced on, on the crypto space. Yeah, I think another thing, another thing to discuss here is we've mentioned the word engagement there. And actually earlier on, we were talking about the, the notion of commitment and how VE tokens kind of technically enforce commitment to a protocol uh, via the locking mechanism. And I think it would be really useful for the conversation and for those listening to the conversation to separate out those two ideas and note that there are some subtle differences between them. So, for example, there are many people who will end up, I think, to some degree with VE token star models um, being committed as a result of a technical lock-in to a protocol. But the technical lock-in does not then dictate that they will actually be engaged. Far from it, actually. You know, I'm sure there are many people in DeFi who have locked tokens but then they're not actually actively engaged in the development of that of that protocol or in the community even. And I think of the two, interestingly, you know, I guess the question I would ask is, which is more important, um, that long-term commitment to the protocol or the engagement with the protocol? Um, or, or is it a balance of both? Because oftentimes I think it's quite hard for a user to do both of those. You know, so there may be people who are willing, for example, to lock for VE credit for four years, but they're not as engaged, perhaps, as someone who hasn't locked VE credit, but really likes the idea and has coalesced around the idea, like you said. So, you know, Zami pointed out and she and you agreed that perhaps the product comes first or if we're being a little bit more reductive, the idea comes first. And then around that idea, flock all these different people, and they then kind of buttress and reinforce it to the point where it can be elevated to something that's almost like an ideal, right? And that is weirdly kind of what happens with meme coins as well, like you said. But I guess, yeah, my question would be, you know, do, do you agree with me that engagement and commitment are quite different things? And do you think they're at odds with each other? And um, which is more important? So um, I think it balances out because you need both sides of the of the spectrum. You need people that sometimes just lock tokens, and I've seen this a lot of times. Lock the tokens, get their fees, and never talk in in the project. There's all, uh, other people that do not lock and 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 speak a lot, and you need both sides of the spectrum for it to work because they balance the, each other out. It, it, it's not a one hundred one side or one hundred the other side. You need a fifty fifty of uh, of that of those situations. Uh, I now forgot the other question. Sorry, Chadley. <laughs> Yeah, don't worry. So um, I asked about the balance, but also I was querying, you know, do you think these are, are odds sometimes? So do you think that because some people become too engaged, maybe they burn out and they don't commit for as long? Um, and also, uh, this wasn't my original question, but another question that can come up with engagement is, how do you foster, how do you encourage a better better engagement from the community, right? Because I think, I think that you know, I, I would suggest, I asked, you know, really, which do you think is more important? And I think you quite rightly said that, look, it has to be a balanced approach. It's important that people are committed, um, but it's also important that people engage. Um, with with the commitment side, I, I think we can encourage that to some degree with the tech, right? And I, I think that's, Zan, we spoke about that earlier. That's kind of what VE locking does. 
is it, it, you know investing tokens puts people in a position where you've incentivized commitment with fees, right, and and with governance power. That's not necessarily quite so easy to do with engagement, I don't think. And I, I know lots of protocols have kind of played around with this idea of you know um, rewarding uh, Discord users, for example, who've been particularly active, etc., and stuff like this. So how do you incentivize reward and cultivate more engagement? So uh, let me let me go down that question a little more in depth. Um, so for engagement and commitment, I'm 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 wondering if the issue is not like either uh, that people are okay. How do I phrase this? I'm wondering if the issue is that there's a, a disconnect between the people who are locking and the people who are actually engaged. Is is that kind of like the issue that we're trying to tackle here? I think I think my point is that what's more interesting to me is that you can you can technically incentivize the commitment side and you can do that with a very clear incentive model. And and that's a proven incentive model that's worked for other protocols. And I think that moving to the VE token model is 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 emblematic of protocols going right yeah we want to incentivize this on a technical level so that people are locked in and they know what they're getting in return and it's a really clear kind of exchange i don't think it's as straightforward with the engagement side i think the engagement side is significantly harder not only to incentivize but you can't really lock it in either um and i'm asking i guess really how do you think a protocol engages users more effectively when you can't technically incentivize it? Or, or maybe you can, I'll be corrected here, in the same way. Uh, okay, so I think in that case, yeah, I, I agree. We can technically get people committed, but then engagement part is hard because it's a it's not really a commitment at all to engage. You don't really need no. to commit. So yeah. the only way we can get engagement is to get people to want to engage, right? So we mm-hmm. just have to make either material. We well, one we got to make it fun, and we got to make it easy for people to engage. Um, yeah. The fun part, I guess, you know, I, I I guess like one one thing that we did in stake before that was pretty unique and was fun was the the kahoot idea, which. Basically, we had these. Uh, it was it was it, Kahoot. For those who don't know, it's like a trivia game where you know there's a leaderboard. They have a lot of uh, fun animations, and like it makes it a, a, a competition to see who's able to answer the most questions correctly about a protocol. Uh, about the protocol, and at the end, we gave the top three scores a reward. Um, in that case, we made it very fun uh, in the sense that people were able to compete and they were kind of like feeling like it was a game. So I guess my point is gamifying engagement was, is probably the best way to make it more fun. Um, and in terms of making it easy, I think, you know, something like a Kahoot. So we're outsourcing our, um, our, our, our engagement to another service and we're just kind of making it easy to have users come in put in a a code go to a website put in a code and then boom they can instantly participate with everyone as well um and on the easy front uh 
uh, we also need to make more community engagement learning material just so people know what's going on, not just be bombarded with a whole bunch of tech technical jargon when they come in, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will I will hop in there in a moment just to talk about the developer side a bit more. But Sheen, is there anything you want to add there? Uh, the only thing I wanted to add is, is it all goes back a little bit to the first conversation is that whenever users log and, and the engagement side is that they, they need to create their safety net. If users log and they are more engaged, there's a higher chance and higher possibility that the project has a long term, a longer term viability because they engage, they learn, they, they put their ideas out. And I'm the prime example of that because uh, Izem can 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 agree with this. Is that I was a normal community uh, guy for for State Stake, and I was there all the time, helping uh, everybody, trying to create that uh, that community sort of without even getting anything. And I was just enjoying being there for for the project and the community. And then with time, I was rewarded with a place in in, in the team to to actually do that community managing. And, and evolving as a, as the person, I think people uh, and users need to see that the more they engage, they will get rewarded for sure. Even if it's because their investment goes better, or because they can actually get spots and can evolve in the crypto space. There's a lot of different ways that people can evolve by engaging with different communities, and it 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 it, it all rewards you at the long term. It's like everything in life. If you work for it, you get rewarded. Yeah. I think um, so. There's there's a couple of points to tease out here a little bit further. So the first is, I think people don't realize as well just how shockingly I spoke about this the other day in another conversation I had. But it's worth saying again, just how shockingly accessible decentralized finance is. So it, it's incredibly easy to have a conversation with incredibly smart people about the protocols they're building. That that would be the first thing I would say. And and if people want to have those conversations, they should go and have them. They're well worth having. Um, the second is in terms of the material being produced. And there's a model that I like in particular. And I, I've spoken about this a little bit before. But this idea that where possible, um, you should be producing material that is accessible, which means that it has a wide range of different ways it could be accessed. Um, so it's not just a written piece, but you also have things that are a visual and auditory. I think all those things really help. Um, to, to, to offer a wide range of people to learn, or a lot, wide range of uh, approaches for people to learn. I think that you need to offer, ideally, some kind of reinforcement mechanism, which means you know you have the initial learning, and maybe that's reading the article or listening to the podcast or watching the video, or maybe something a bit more creative than that, maybe a combination of the three. And then after that, the reinforcing is a bit like the Kahoot you were mentioning earlier, which is a service I've used before. So that, that is taking the opportunity to give them a chance to be tested on their knowledge or to apply their knowledge into a scenario so that they can actually um, integrate it a little bit more into their existing thought processes uh, as opposed to um, an isolated idea that they'll forget. You know, the, the research bears out on this in education that essentially if you can take new ideas and integrate them into your existing structures in your head, you're far more likely to hold on to them. If you can apply an idea in practice, you're far more likely to hold on to it. Um, and the last one with this kind of content is to offer an extension opportunity. So listen, there, there are going to be people that take part in these in these protocols. Maybe they go and do the Kahoot. Uh, maybe they listen to the podcast. And what they want afterwards, really, they're going to be people who are quite hungry, right? They're, they're going to have absorbed the content and go, I like that. How can I do some, what else can I do? And I think it's at that point that you give them another step they could take in their learning journey to stretch themselves, to get them into that kind of proximal zone of learning development.
mm-hmm. um, and that's important too. So when it comes to, to, to materials, it's really important that there is accessibility, that it's reinforceable, or there's an opportunity to have it reinforced. And it has an extension or an opportunity to be stretched. You know, If you can do all those things, that's great, great material for your community. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think all those things uh, are key. And so we, we kind of circle back to, um, I mentioned I wanted to ask a little bit more about developers and their role in this, because I, I think that's one of the hardest bridges to cross. I, I don't know if you agree with me, um, and, and this is either of you really jumping in here, but you know, sometimes there can be a really, it can seem like there's almost a chasm between, um, between the, the user and the person that created the product. Um, and, and, it, and it can be quite hard to bridge that gap. Um, how, how do you feel about that? Uh, Zem, you want to take this or do you want me to give my personal? Uh, like? Yeah, I'll take, I'll, I'll take okay. this. I'll speak for a little bit about it. And um, if Entropy, or if, if, you're, if you're still listening, uh, I want to see your take as well on this. Um, but yeah, I think the, it's, 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 it's difficult to gauge with, well, it's, 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 it's kind of difficult, I would say, to engage with the community, community all the time. Um, I think I personally need to do a better job to, you know, at least hop in once in a while to join in on the conversations in Revenant chat. Um, it is difficult though, in the sense that there are like most of my day is working on Revenant and I'm working on all the different backend like operations going on. So a lot of it is communicating with other people who are front facing with the community rather than me personally communicating with the community. And yeah, uh, Charlie, you're exactly right. There, there is this, uh, this chasm that I don't, I don't really know if it's really a huge problem or if it's a small problem where, as in, I just need to kind of go in there. Uh, us devs kind of just need to go in there and just like chat with community once in a while and make sure that people know that we're around. Um, I don't know if it's a huge problem or not in that sense. What do you guys think? Yeah. I mean, I agree with Sam. Like the thing is like, we are like, I consider us like a very early stage, like startup. So like most of our, like, core dev team has to be spent on developing and maintaining the protocols um and sometimes it's a lot of work so like we don't have time to like actively engage in the discord but as the protocol does involve uh, i would hope that we would be more involved with the community once we have less things on our plate you know so right now things are just a little hectic like we have singularity launch coming up soon and we still have some things to work on the credit ui but once those things are out of the way then we definitely will have more time to be engaging with the community uh, listening to the yeah go yeah yeah listening to those two is literally giving reason of why community managers exist and and why they are they are an essential piece in every project and every project should have someone designated to talk to the community like myself I'm all the time in the community talking and and giving like this this feedback to to users and if they have any questions I can answer them but there's a gap that, that there's a gap and. I don't think them and entropy need to every day or every time need to be talking to the community because they have their part of the job. My part of the job is to talk to the community and being there and, and organize everything for them so they don't have that added pressure uh, to their day-to-day work. Uh, 
time. But there, there, there's a differentiation where I should be talking to community you know, on normal stuff, updates, uh, giving feedback, talking to users, having fun with them. But if, if, if for some reason there's somebody that wants to have a more technical talk that, I'm not, that I know that I'm not 100% as capable as Zaman Entropy, then yeah, then Zaman Entropy needs to go there and talk. But there's, there's no like, effective need for them to always be there talking to the community. But there's a need for them to bridge that gap of more technical conversations that sometimes community, community members cannot have. Or it... it it, it, it basically is not as easy to talk for, for me, for example. Um, and and it's sometimes it, it's the only place where I feel like they need to talk, but even then we easily get everything done. And if, even with the bunch of messages I receive every day, the community is, in my opinion, is pretty happy. They, they Sometimes, yeah, of course, if we don't give an update from, from time to time because we're focused on, on everybody's focused on their jobs, on their marketing, on back end, on front end, and et cetera. And we sometimes, and it happened where we were all focused on doing our thing that we forgot that, that we had like uh, uh, to give an update. And it happens yeah. because we're so focused on on have, wanting to do everything correctly that, that we forget like, the prime the prime thing of giving an update and showing progress. Yeah, I think um, so. From the three of you there, that's a really good roundup of of different perspectives from that from different positions inside the lab. Um, I think so. The last kind of point I'll close out on this because I'm conscious of time, but. I would say that I think this is one area where the education stuff really comes into play because if if you're if you want to be in a position where and I think you all do want to be in a position where the community comes on the journey with you one of the problems I guess for devs sometimes is you enter into conversation and you don't necessarily know to what degree there is a baseline of knowledge you can rely upon right so if you want to talk, for example, about what you've been doing at the back end or the front end or wherever you want to choose, one of the issues can be it's almost immediately it's like, well, what, what verbiage, what vernacular, what, what vocabulary can I use here, right? What is acceptable for the, for the audience I'm talking to? Because um, they're not developers necessarily. So how do I translate what I've been doing in a way that's, that's understandable? And already what that does is it kind of hampers the truth of what's been going on to a degree that I think sometimes that can be quite it can dissuade people from wanting to share what's going on because it's almost like, oh, I have to almost translate this. <laughs> I have to almost filter this out from one language that I'm used to, to using into another. And that's quite tiring and I'm quite tired anyway, and I've been working really hard. And um, it is it is important though, that, that ultimately to keep that community on the same journey, that they have a, a, a basic subset of understandings, which means that they can come along for most of the conversation. Because otherwise you lose kind of the magic of what's been being created because they don't really understand what you're saying. So, you know, one of the things I think that one of the, the, the steps we're taking with the podcast is to try and offer an opportunity where there is a more long form look at different things and we can expand upon different ideas. And maybe we can catch up a few more people to join us in the boat for the journey who otherwise would have thought, you know what, I, I'm just not I'm, I'm, I'm not good enough to understand what's going on here. Um, that that would be my hope anyway. Um, but yeah, any, any any closing thoughts on that before we wrap up here? Uh, yeah, just just going on that last topic. Uh, I've talked to Zem about this, and 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 I think we're going to go through it. Is whenever a single OT comes out, and we have like the 
uh, start of explaining how it works and, and the good and bad, the good parts of singularity. Uh, we're going to have sort of like two medium articles or two explanations, one more, one more technical and one less technical and more like visual uh, so people can understand. Something that we actually did on Creditum was having more pictures and visualizations of what happens and what, and what Creditum does. It was actually effective because users had a baseline of an image that explained all the process and all the, oh, you borrow and you lend and you have an arrow that explains the what if, the if and what. Uh, and I think it's more effective that way. If people want to be technical, you read the technical. If you want to be less technical because you don't have that much experience and you want to just learn on an easy way, you go to the less technical one and you have both sides of the spectrum to explain to the user. Agreed. So we're providing as many options as we can. That's that's the idea there. Okay, so um, we're pretty much at the end of our time for this rotation, for this round. Um, thank you for joining, guys. I think that was great. Um, and uh, we'll catch uh, everyone next time. All right.